This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. And I am delighted today to be joined by Ambassador Fitz Haney, who has had a remarkable career in international business, starting with Procter & Gamble in Puerto Rico, Pepsi in Mexico, and Citibank all throughout Central America, and then in the investment management business in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa. In 2014, President Obama nominated Fitz Haney to be the United States Ambassador to Costa Rica, and he became the only political appointee of President Obama to be maintained by President Trump. Ambassador Haney was awarded the Grand Silver Cross of the National Order by the government of Costa Rica and won second place on Dancing with the Stars in Costa Rica. Ambassador Haney, like I, am a rabbi's husband, and he has been seven years longer than me. He has been a rabbi's husband since 2000. He and his wife live in, and their four children live in Renana, which is in central Israel. Ambassador Haney, uh, first, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. And you have a fascinating Jewish journey, which I can't do justice to by describing it. So uh, before we get into your chosen passage, which is actually a, a collection of passages all about loving the stranger, just tell us about your Jewish journey. Sure. Well, Mark, thank you for having me. And uh, it's good to talk to another rabbi's husband. So That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my Jewish journey, I think, started in, in, if I really have to think about it, started when I was really young. And, it, huh. and it's a little bit about going as a stranger as well. When I was growing up, there were very few minorities in my town. In, in Nashville? And uh, I was born in Nashville. But I grew up in a town called Naperville, Illinois, so outside okay. of Chicago. Okay. And at the time, um, it was about 25,000 people. And I think there were 10 minority families, maybe 11, three African-American families, two Hispanic, like three Jewish and two Asian. So, so you, you were one of the three African-American families in a city of 25,000 people? More or less. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so we would get together on Friday nights at one of the Jewish families with, at the time, I didn't know what it was, but they would light candles and we'd all have dinner together. And so I obviously later found out that that was Shabbat candles and Shabbat dinner. But that was my first kind of introduction to what Judaism was about. And then when I was in Mexico, I grew up very Catholic, um, very religious, went to Catholic schools into high school, basically. And then one of the reasons I toured Georgetown was because it was a Jesuit institution as well and led silent retreats, was a peer counselor, all that. And when I got to Latin America, I really couldn't find a community which I connected with, which is a little strange considering that 80% of Latin America is Catholic. Right. There's a church in every corner. It'd be really easy to do so. But I just wasn't finding the kind of community I guess I was used to, what have you. So I reached out to a friend of mine when I was living in Mexico and said, you know, I live my life studying the New Testament. I never really studied the, what, the Old Testament. And so I'd like to just do some learning. I mean, she was kind of like, well, what are you doing? You're crazy. We, we, even we don't like studying this stuff. And I'm like, look, Jews have been around for thousands of years. So it has to have a really rich tradition here. I don't know anything about. So I'd like to just like study. And now with the hope that by me studying the mother religion, I'd get brought back to the daughter religion, my birth religion, and uh, reconnect. That was my plan. So she found a assistant rabbi in an Orthodox shul in Mexico City. This is, this is around what time? The early 90s? This would have been around the, this was the late 90s. This okay. was the late 90s. And uh, he had to get permission from the chief rabbi in Mexico to learn with me. 
his first question was, well, are you dating anybody? And I'm like, no. <laughs> He's like, all right, because if you were, I don't know if I could learn with you. And, 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 and that, that's because he, an Orthodox rabbi would not want somebody converting only to get married. And that would be a concern he would have had. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. And so uh, we learned together for two years and we made a deal. We would do an hour, hour and a half of Jewish philosophy and thought. And I would learn with him an hour, hour and a half a week of Catholic philosophy. Because he grew, he grew up in Uruguay and he grew up saying, look, I know that there's rich philosophers in Catholicism, but my parents shielded me from them because they were always worried, being such a minority and such a large majority, that I may be influenced if I were learning about other religions at the same time. He said, but you know, now I'm a rabbi, so I don't think that's an issue anymore. I think, I think we're safe with that. So I'd like to delve into that. And I said, I could talk to you all day about Catholic philosophy. And so we did that for two years. And about a year into it, I walked into his office, one of our meetings. And I said, what started out as a purely intellectual pursuit had started to touch me, started to evolve internally. And I didn't know what to do with it. And he looked at me and said, well, I could have told you that like after a third or fourth meeting, but you had to come to me with that. I didn't want to put that idea in your head. He said, but from our conversations, from what you were telling me, you were understanding about what we were talking about, he goes, you have a Jewish soul. Um, it's just, we'll take time for it to develop. I said, okay, so what do I do with this? And he said, well, that's up to you. But if you really want to take this the entire path, it's not going to be easy. He goes, I'll help you, but it's not going to be easy. And so I decided to pursue it. They don't convert in Mexico. They just don't do it. And so he said, you either have to go to the United States or go to Israel. And so I found a program in Israel that um, at the time was called WUJIS, Worldwide Union for Jewish Students which is part of the Jewish agency, which was an idea to bring Jewish diaspora post-college, post-graduate school to Israel for a Jewish experience. This is way before birthright. This is way before that existed. And so I decided to do that program. And a really smart friend of mine at the time said, look, go back home to Chicago, convert there, because then at least legally the Jewish state will see you as Jewish, and then you'll deal with the rabbinate afterward. And so that's what I did. I ended up converting conservative in Chicago going to Israel and reconverting Orthodox and was on my way. And when did you get, you got married in 2000? I got married in 2000. So what was your wife a rabbi in 2000? She was ordained in 2002. So in 2000, we met in, we met actually at the absorption center in Arad in the middle of the Negev desert. She happened to go on the same program I was going on. And she went on the program because it was a good Hebrew open as well. And she had to do her junior year, her third year of rabbinical school in Israel and all in Hebrew. Did she go to JTS? She went to uh, UJ. Okay. So she went to UJ out in California, which is now called American University of Judaism or something right. like that. It used so. to be, yeah, yeah. And so um, their third year of seminary is actually in, Jer- in Jerusalem. And so she wanted to take a year beforehand to get her Hebrew up to speed and happened to be on the same program. And we happened to be next door neighbors. And out of a program of about 30 people, there were only four of us who were Shomer Shabbat, myself and my roommate, and her and her roommate. And so we spent a lot of time when everyone was dancing at the Dead Sea, playing Sheshbesh, backgammon. <laughs> so we got to know each other fairly well. And then I moved to Jerusalem, we had a job, and she finished studying. And um, she was ordained in 2002 when she was pregnant, actually, with our, our first. And she said, yes, I'm going to be the knocked up rabbi on stage. She was about eight, seven, seven and a half months pregnant, seven months pregnant at the time. So yeah. Wow. And, and now, now you're back in Israel with, with your, with your uh, wife and four kids. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Full circle. So um, uh, the, the biblical passage that, that you wanted to discuss is the passage on loving the stranger. And there are actually, as you pointed out, many passages about loving the stranger. In fact, it is the most frequently 
cited commandment in the Bible 36 times to love the stranger in various forms and incarnations. Correct. And there, like I said, there are so many different examples of this, but the one that I think talks to me the most uh, is found in Shemot in Exodus. Uh, and it's chapter 23, verse 9. Um, and I'm just going to read it. It's, Ve'ger lo telchatz ve'atem yadatem et nefesh ha'ger ki garim ha'item be'eretz mitzchaim. So do not oppress a stranger. You yourselves know how it feels because you were strangers in Egypt. And actually, that's a loose translation. I think the better one's probably, you know the soul. You know the soul of a stranger. Interesting. And that, and that to me is just, it's so deep on so many different levels. I did not know until you asked me, so you helped me learn already, that it was the most cited commandment in the Torah. You know, in studying this, preparing for talking with you about this passage and why it means so, so much to me, I did go over Baba Matsya and Rabbi Eliezer and found his comment. It's 36 times mentioned. Some people say it's 46, which means a, you, we, are, we are commanded to love, protect, or honor the stranger more than anything else in Torah, which is amazing. It, it is amazing, particularly in the context of the time. The, the idea that we should love the stranger's commandment might be the craziest idea anybody ever had. You know, the word barbarian comes from the Greek because the Greeks regarded all foreign voices as sound like bar, bar, bar. And they made fun of it with the term barbarian and said that these are barbarians. In other words, this is the natural reaction to the stranger. You know, perhaps one of the um, dumbest ideas in the world is that we should do what's natural, right? Because what's natural is often what's wrong. And usually the point of morality is to overcome what's natural and to get us to a better place. And, and loving the stranger is totally unnatural. I mean, the, the Greeks had it with barbarians. You know, I, the story was the terrible story of two years ago when the missionary John Allen Chow went to the island, the North Sentinel Island, right off India. And, and he was warned not to do it. The island, it was illegal to go there because these were the, the islanders, and there are only a few dozen of them, have been completely untouched by modernity, including the idea of loving the stranger. So the Indian law was don't go there. He went and was promptly murdered because they viewed the stranger as a threat. Right. In comes the Bible and says, don't view the stranger as a threat. In fact, love the stranger. Yeah, which is, which is uh, I will have to do some more learning on this. I'm not sure. But um, I wonder why when the potential proselyte, when the potential convert approached Hillel and Shammai and said, you know, teach me Torah one foot. And Shammai hits him over the head with a cubit and a building, a building cubit. And uh, Hillel says, you know, don't do unto, don't do unto others what's, you, what's hateful to you, to yourself. You know, all the rest is commentary. Go and learn. I'm surprised he didn't say love the stranger all the rest is commentary, go and learn. Because it is fundamental. I think one of the beauties and what really attracted me um, a lot to Judaism is that it does, to your point, I think a lot of the commandments, and this is my personal philosophy, or uh, but a, lot of, a lot of the commandments help us elevate who we are, help us. Right. And it's, it's, it's much more about us than it is about God. And does God need our commandments? I think, I think it's, it's for us. And I think this is just to your point, it's so unnatural. We have to be commanded so many times because it is a lot easier. It's a lot harder to love and respect and cherish those that don't look like us, that don't sound like us. That, and I think we see it in today's world everywhere. Sure. I mean, so you're right. This was a this was a revolutionary idea. I mean, there are a lot of revolutionary ideas in the Torah, but this was definitely one that at the time was unheard of. And and you're absolutely right that we we don't have to be commanded to do stuff we would do. Anyway, the Torah tells us over and over again to love a stranger. It never tells us to love our children. Correct. It does tell them to love us. <laughs> it tells it them to respect us. It tells them to respect right. us. Uh, to honor. That's, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It says to honor, but it never says, it, it's right. It tells the children to honor your parents, yep. 
but it never tells the parents to love our children because of course we're going to love our children. No one has to tell us to do it. Just like no one ever went to a doctor who said, whatever you do, go to the bathroom tomorrow. Like you don't have to be commanded to do something you're going to do anyway. But the fact that loving the stranger is so unnatural correlates to the fact that it's so ubiquitous all throughout the Torah. Right. No, hundred percent, hundred percent. It's uh, and like I said, I think it's just one of many revolutionary ideas uh, the Torah had, but it's one that, and a lot of them are obviously we we do today and are applicable today. And this one to me just speaks. I mean, part of it's just my personal life. Um, you know, the reason that I think this spoke to me even before I was Jewish is the fact that I myself felt as a stranger in so much of who I am um, in my personal reality growing up. And then, you know, when I studied abroad in high school, I was the first African person of African descent that many people I ran into had ever met in person, you know? And so, you know, those kind of experiences, um, you know, working in the corporate world and not seeing a lot of other people who looked like me, especially as I went up the corporate ladder to the fact of even as ambassador and working in the state department, which is supposed to represent U.S. interests, but also U.S. ideals and, 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 and be a kind of a mirror on America doesn't tap into the wonderful, rich diversity of the country. You know, today, there are only out of 189 ambassadors, there are only three who are African-American and they all happen to be male. And so I think my entire life, in some ways, because of the situation that I was in, I felt like a stranger. I felt like an outsider. And then obviously my conversion to Judaism kind of cemented that status officially in Jewish thought as a gear. You know, when I, when I thought about the passages that really have affected me and, and kind of been a moral compass in my life, a lot of it has to do with the fact that I was on the other end of that. And I've experienced both when people have been loving and accepting and other times when people haven't been, you know, haven't been that way. A huge difference in my ability to be, to realize who I am by others' reactions to me in these kind of circumstances, so... So when people love the stranger, and because love in Judaism is not a nice sentiment that may be in a pop song. It's, a, it's an action word. It's, you can't love somebody without acting lovingly. And you don't act lovingly by sending flowers. I mean, you, it, lo- love is always tied into the idea of sacrifice. In fact, the first mention of the word love in the Torah is not in a romantic context at all. It's between Abraham and Isaac, a father loving a son. That's the first mention of love. That's how we're introduced to love. It's through the notion of sacrifice, because he was walking up the mountain, God forbid, to sacrifice him. But that's, that, that's where just to love. So love is sacrifice. So we talk about loving the stranger in Judaism. It's always about acting in love. Like you, you can't say, I love my wife and do nothing that, would, that, that is evidencing that love. So when you say people have l- loved the stranger with regards to you personally, um, how have you experienced that love? So, I mean, um, one of the first examples I had in Judaism was my first um, Yom Kippur. I've been learning for a little over probably five months at the time. In, in Israel or Mexico? It was in Mexico. And um, the rabbi said, you know, look, come to Yom Kippur service and see what it's about. I went in there and obviously, you know, especially getting to an Orthodox shul coming from zero, I had no idea what was going on. I, I couldn't have, you know, and, and the rabbi is very engrossed. And, you know, I see another rabbi, he's crying the entire time. We were there, I don't know how many hours. The whole time? The whole time. Wow. <laughs> I've never seen that. Yeah, I had. I was like, this is my first formal, except for some bar bat mitzvah parties growing up. This is my first formal introduction to Jewish literature. And um, I'd love to have him on the podcast, crying all day during <laughs> Yom Kippur. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Have, that's an incredible religious experience. Wow. Okay. It, it, yeah, and you know, I people come over, and they and they could read. Obviously, they'd never seen me before, and they'd come over and they'd help me. You know, and they'd help explain where we were and show me the pages, and we're very welcoming, very warm, and you know, 
just accepting. And so that was kind of, that's a good example for me. And I always tell my wife, anytime we've moved anywhere or we're visiting the city and I walk into a shul, I can usually tell almost instantaneous what kind of community it is. Really? Because it's likely that I'm going to be different and most people won't have seen somebody in shul that looks like me, especially the Orthodox shuls we tend to go to. And so their response to how open are people, do they come up and introduce themselves? Do they say hello? Do they ask me, do I need anything? You know, or are they a little more standoffish? There's a little more like, who are you and why are you here? And I've had it the other gamut as well, which is, you know, people come up to me and say, well, what are you doing here? And I'm like, well, you know, as a Jew, I think I, I want to pray. Is there a problem with that? <laughs> when, when you say that, what, what kind of response do you receive? People kind of look at me and um, usually as we go through the service, they see, I know what I'm doing and I seem to do exactly what they're doing. They kind of back off and they're kind of like, oh, okay. And I had, I had people come up and say, you know, especially when they're waiting for a minyan and I could be 10th and they're kind of like, mm, do we need an 11th? You know, and I've had it, I've had it times and say, you know, look, I know you can count me. I've had that happen as well. So um, it really depends on, on, but that's, those are two kind of diametrically opposed examples of within my Jewish experience, one, which is just welcoming the stranger, complete stranger, I have no idea who you are, but you're here and we're going to be open and kind and accommodating to you're different and don't know you and why you're here. And, and when you're in an Orthodox shul, of course, you won't be seated with your wife. So you know, what was the Jewish experience like as the ambassador from the United States to Costa Rica? You were an Orthodox Jew at that point. Correct. Correct. And, and the United States ambassador. Correct. <laughs> you know, I, I give the State Department a lot of props. Uh, you know, we came in and, you know, they talked about the, the ambassadorial residence and how wonderful it is and what have you. And the first thing my wife and I said, well, is the kitchen not going to be kosher? And they're like, No. And um, they were not expecting the question. Yeah, they're kind of like, okay, well, what does that entail? And I'm like, it entails a lot. Uh, but they were very good. And, um, you know, I put them in touch with the Chabad rabbi in San Jose. And they did everything he said. He came in and he completely tore everything out and redid the entire kitchen. And they paid for it and said, no problem. We got two sets of new china. Because <laughs> we're like, and, you know, we pushed for three. Because my wife tried to explain Passover and they're like, yeah, no, we'll give you two. We're not going to give you three or four. That's reasonable. <laughs> yeah, we'll just go away for, we'll go away for Pesach. Right. And so, you know, I think it was a learning experience for everybody. We tried to, like Rosh Hashanah dinners, we had a sukkah. So we tried to invite people for Sukkot. And we tried to incorporate to what we, we, ambassadorial or state events within our Jewish tradition. There's a little friction. We didn't allow a Christmas tree in the residence just because our kids had never been around one and we didn't want one. Well, you're Jewish. It's your residence. You shouldn't have a Christmas tree. True. But it's also, it's also a representation for the embassy community and the United States. And so I was fine with it at the office at the embassy. That's fine. But I didn't want it in the house. But, you know, then in some feedback, we had long discussions. And I had kind of an, kind of an open, kind of a, um, call them the, not like a, an open discussion with um, a lot of members of the embassy because I didn't understand the depth of their like, oh, we always like going to the ambassador's house to see the Christmas tree. And, da, da. you know, and I could explain to them why we couldn't have that. We didn't have an Easter egg roll <laughs> um, because we had, a, you know, a huge lawn, a huge yard. And there was a tradition that they have done. And I'm like, okay, fine. Sure. Yeah, I can explain to the kids what this is and what this is about. So we let that happen. Uh, but we tried to, um, you know, incorporate as much as it was just who we were. It wasn't anything, you know, 
that we hid. A funny story is when I first met the president of Costa Rica, I present my credentials to him as a very formal ceremony at the foreign ministry and everyone's there and they have the rifles and everything. And you walk in and I go ahead to present him like, you know, Mr. President. And he goes, Shalom, Shalom. <laughs> okay. Well, but I'm not the ambassador from Israel. I'm the ambassador from the United States. Uh, but uh, so it was well known, um, you know, something that we talked freely about. We did interviews about our Hanukkah traditions, our holiday traditions versus Christmas and things of that nature. So, yeah, I, I hope it was a good experience for everybody. It was for us. It definitely was for us. In Latin America, there's a, a real growing sense and resurgence of Zionism there. Yeah, yeah. Did you see that in Costa Rica? I know, I know Brazil, particularly the evangelical community in Brazil, is extraordinarily pro-Israel, very Zionist, and great supporters of the state of Israel. Yeah, yeah. Costa Rica, you know, has a very strong, small, but very strong Jewish community. And it's very connected to Israel. I would say, I just speaking off the top of my head, we're probably around 80% of all the high school graduates. There's a, there's a Jewish school there. Because when I was uh, contemplated for ambassador, I said, I only have three conditions. I'll go anywhere in the world you want to send me. It'd be an honor, obviously. But one, it needs to be a Spanish or Portuguese-speaking country, because I speak both, and I think it's important. You speak both Spanish and Portuguese? Yeah. It's important for the ambassador to be able to communicate in the, in the native local language. It has to have a Jewish community, and there needs to be a Jewish day school. And so that kind of cut the possibilities down to like seven countries around the world. Spain, Portugal, Brazil, Costa Rica, and a few others? Yeah, and Portugal, not, actually not, because there wasn't, at the time, there wasn't a Jewish day school in Lisbon. Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, and I think that's it. I don't think there was a Spanish day school in Madrid either, actually. So um, it was all Latin America, basically. Costa Rica, we love Uruguay and also Uruguay, Argentina and Uruguay. Forgot those two. Argentina has the largest Jewish community. And so for us, it was that was kind of the requirement. And that's who we were and who we were going to be. And the community itself there is strong. It's small, but strong. But about 80% of the kids that go to the Jewish day school spend a year in Israel automatically, a gap year after graduation. A lot of them end up making Aliyah. And they end up staying, much of the chagrin of the community because it is so small it's, and it's shrinking. But um, it is very Zionistic. The, the day school, the synagogue, uh, the embassy, the Israeli embassy there is very strong as well. Very good relations. Um, and I think one thing Israel's done over the last decade, more or less, is also invested a lot in the relationships in Latin America. Yes. As has looked around the world and thought, you know, how can we continue to make new friends or strengthen friendships? Latin America has been a natural extension. And so there's been a lot of work by the Israeli, um, the prime minister's office and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to really strengthen those relationships. And Costa Rica has been an ally, you know, from day one. I don't want to, I want to say it was one of the first countries to recognize uh, the state of Israel as well. So, and you walk into the Congress there, into their, into their Capitol building, and you have the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. Wow. And so it's, yeah. Really? It's, it's something, yeah. Yeah. And they've had a Jewish vice president before. They've had a Jewish um, ambassador to the UN from Costa Rica. So the community, is, it's very well integrated into society as well. Interesting. So, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of talk about rising anti-Semitism. There's also rising philo-Semitism. Yes. I mean, this, this love of the Jews, Jewish people, the Ten Commandments in Hebrew in Costa Rica, who would have thought? Right. Yeah. But it's uh, <laughs> exactly it's a great thing. So very interesting. You know what you're saying before about uh, Rabbi Hillel and why he didn't mention loving the stranger. Perhaps it's because I think one of the more underrated aspects of his statement was at the end where he said, go and learn. Yeah. You know, he, he's not saying just stand on. He's like, I can't teach this to you on one foot. I'm going to give you one. Right. Line, and now go and learn and going and learning. 
it's as 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 the rabbi told you, Mexico, it's it's not an easy process. Yeah. It's a total joy, but it's not easy, it's not fast. And as soon as you start learning, you're gonna be confronted at least 36 times in various forms with love the stranger. So it's gonna become part of who you are as a Jew. Yeah, no, 100 percent I think it's the essence of and I mean part of it obviously is because of our experience as a people and being strangers, you know, from Egypt, but fast forward thousands of years to so many different countries and so many different instances where we were always the stranger. So in essence, a lot of it, I think, is, is kind of reminding us we were once strangers. We have continued to be strangers in lots of ways, so we know what it feels to be that way. And we know how necessary it is to reach out to a stranger and to try to help them and try to accept them. Like you said, it's love, but love's an action. It's not just, oh, this nice, fluffy feeling. It's like, no, <laughs> you have to actually do something to welcome the stranger into your world even though the person may not look like you, speak like you, believe like you, et cetera. That's right. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm surprised it's not one of the, um, you know, seven no-hide laws. And I, I, it really should be. It really should be because I think the world would be in a lot better place. You know, obviously it's a lot of the foundation of Judeo-Christian influence in Western societies. You know, in the United States has traditionally always been very welcoming to the stranger in its history. And, you know, I, yeah, I think you could trace that right back to the Judeo part of that Judeo-Christian history it has, but it's not part of the Noahide laws. And I, and, and I found that really, it was, as your point, very revolutionary. And I would thought that it would have been one of the things that we said, you know what, if there are seven or eight things that we think every human being should do, regardless of what religion you are, right. that should probably be one of them. I'd probably make the world a lot better place. That's a, yeah, very, very interesting. And, you know, it was Rabbi Akiva who's called loving the stranger, the greatest principle of the Torah. And, and Rabbi Akiva may have been the goat, the greatest of all time, right? So he's, he certainly has a claim to that. And when he says the greatest principle of the Torah is loving the stranger, that's pretty authoritative. But why someone that did it, seven no Hakadim? It's such an interesting question. So moving from uh, one text, the, the Torah text, to another text, this is always the, uh, the concluding question. The other text is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He says, I just ran into someone with whom I'd served in the war. And he said, uh, this man has saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to this man, um, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And he said, I've learned two things. He said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> in, in, in all of your years, both in business and in government, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? One that pops to mind immediately, and it's, it's, been, it's more being a parent than being a government or, or, or business you are only as happy as your most miserable child. That's right. That is just, that is just the truth. Uh, you said, you know, we are, we are commanded to love our kids because we don't have to because it's something that comes naturally, but so does the pain when, you, when they're not happy. And so I think that, you know, having four kids, if we have three of the four that are okay, we're like, wow, this is a good ratio at the time. No, that's right. That's exactly right. There's no law of averages. Like if three kids yeah. are doing really well and one, God forbid, is sick, you're not like, you don't average them out. You're you're worth you're as happy as your least happy child. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that that's something that uh, yeah. I think my mother and my grandmother said that, and I'm and that just is it rings so true to me now as a parent. And then I think in humankind, I would say, and it, I don't want to sound negative. But I would say that there one thing definitely I've seen in government as well as in business, the fear of failure tends to paralyze people. Very interesting. And I think that's why people who can overcome that are either reckless or super successful, one of the two. And that, that, that's also explained by the Torah, because if the most frequently stated positive commandment is love the stranger, the most frequently stated commandment, I believe is 80 times is do not fear. 
Wow. See, I didn't know that. That's, that's amazing. But that gets exactly to your point. That's exactly your, is that, is that if this is one of the two things that you've taken away from all these, is that how immobilizing fear is. And in comes the Torah and tells us 80 times, do not fear because you must be exactly right in biblical days and today is that once you fear, and I, I think this is a subject from another time, but this is also the darkness plague. This is the ninth plague, the penultimate plague, because what is every child's fear? They all fear the darkness at some point because fear is so, and it's so immobilizing. Yeah, and I think that probably explains why 80 times in the Torah it says, uh, do not fear. So how have you seen people become immobilized by fear, both in, in, in business and as an ambassador? Really from the, the you know, as an ambassador, I, I saw it mu- I saw it in the transition between the governments. Um, you know, you, you had said that I was the only ambassador who had the privilege of staying once the change in administration happened. And change is always scary. And that's for everybody. And we, are, we as human beings know that. And we experience it in different ways. But, you know, I, I saw an opportunity. What I saw was an opportunity to say, look, you know, there's a whole new set of rules. There's a whole new set of expectations and so this allows us to try something different, try something new and go out there and see if it works. And the ability for people to get beyond, I can't, I don't know. I said, okay, it was an amazed. What were they afraid of? Because I, I just imagine these, they're, they're civil servants. They don't fear for their jobs, right? So, I mean, or do they? Or They, they do. They, they fear, a lot of them are foreign service officers and they fear for their career. It's, it's very difficult to get to the top of the foreign service, which is obviously what most people's goal is. And your reputation in Washington and in the hallways of Foggy Bottom, where the State Department is located, is very important. And so, you know, ruffling feathers or not doing things the way people expect you to do or making somebody's job harder because you went off on a different path, it could be dangerous for your future. And so, and I understood that. You know, I was a political appointee. And even though I got to stay an extra seven months, I was going to be out in the summer. And I knew that. And so for me, you know, there was very low risk. You know, and I told them, I said, well, blame the crazy ambassador. Let's try something different. Let's try something new and say, look, we had a crazy political appointee and he wanted to do this and he was the ambassador. So we had to, and let's just try it. So that was within that context. You know, and I think in life in general, I've just seen many times, you know, people wanting to take a new job, try something new, meet somebody different. It's comfortable to your original point. We have to be commanded to step out of our comfort zone. That's right. And so I, I you know, I did not know, thank you for telling me that, you know, in the Torah, it says 80 times no, do not fear. And it was like, you know, when, when, you know, Moshe with Hashem's help parted the Red Sea and everyone stood there and it was Nachshon who finally said, okay, I'm going in. You know, it took that first person to be like, okay, I'm not going to fear. I'm going to do this. Cause after all they went through with the Egyptians chasing them, they would have just stayed there. <laughs> you know, that one person said, okay, I have the faith. I'm not going to fear. We're going to go forward. Who knows what would have happened to the Jewish nation. So I think we see that all the time in our lives. And, you know, there's a, a balance between, not being reckless and not being not not thoughtful about it, but also just the fear and letting the fear paralyze and really take away what your I think your your human potential to to maximize who you are as a person and that and that that I see I think just in general it's 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 sad but that's right well ambassador thank you so much for such a fascinating uh, discussion and for your service to the United States and for being such a kiddush Hashem for blessing God's name with all you are and all you do and. Uh, God willing, uh, we're in the middle of COVID now, but God willing, this will pass soon. And my and my rabbi wife, we'll get together with you and your rabbi wife and each we, of our respective we, four children. And exactly. In, in beautiful Renana, God willing. So we, we, we'd love to have you anytime. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. You are the God of the brave. If you don't get those breakthrough in the house tonight, 